This reading is from Thomas Boston's book, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. State 1, number 2, flowing from man's primitive state. I will present to you some of the things that accompanied or resulted from righteousness of man in his original state. Happiness is the outcome of holiness, and as a man was holy, he was also in a state of happiness. 1. Man was a truly magnificent being. We can assume that just as Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain, man had a bright and pleasant countenance with a beautiful body, as there was no darkness of sin in him. Since God himself is glorious in holiness, Exodus chapter 15 verse 11, it is certain that the spiritual beauty bestowed upon man by the Lord at his creation made him a truly magnificent being. His holy conduct radiated light, glorifying the Creator. Every action reflected a ray of glorious and pure light that God had placed within his soul. The lamp of love, kindled from heaven, continued to burn in his heart, resembling the holy place. The law of the Lord, written on his inward parts by God's finger, was faithfully kept within him, akin to the most holy place. There was no impurity visible outwardly, no wandering gaze with lustful intent in his eyes. His tongue spoke only the language of heaven. In summary, the king's son was all glorious within and adorned with clothing of wrought gold. 2. Man was God's beloved. He shone bright in the image of God, whom he naturally loves wherever his image is present. Even when man was alone in the world, he was not truly alone because God was with him. He enjoyed communion and fellowship with his Creator directly, as there was nothing yet to turn God's face away from the work of his own hands. By God's favor, man was elevated to being a partner with heaven in the first covenant, known as the covenant of works. God transformed the law he had given in creation into a covenant with perfect obedience as the condition. Life was the promised reward, death was the penalty. One significant aspect of the natural law was that man was to believe whatever God revealed and do whatever he commanded. Thus, when God made this covenant with man, he extended man's duty to include not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This extended law became the standard for man's obedience in the covenant. These terms were easy for man, who had the natural law written on his heart and inclined to obey the positive law revealed to him possibly through an audible voice. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The requirement was highly reasonable since it focused on the precise point of God's will, demonstrating true obedience in an external manner where disobedience would be evident. According to this condition, God promised man life, the continuation of natural life and the union of soul and body and spiritual life in the favor of his Creator. He also promised eternal life in heaven, which man would enter after successfully passing the earthly trial and being transported to the upper paradise by the Lord's will. This promise of life was included within the threat of death mentioned in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, when God said, In the day you eat from it, you will surely die. It was essentially saying, If you do not eat from it, you will surely live. This promise of life in heaven is evident in the covenant because the threatening was of eternal death in hell which man became liable to, and Christ was promised to redeem him from that death through his own death. Jesus himself interpreted the promise of the covenant of works as eternal life when he presented the condition of that covenant to a young man who sought to enter into life through works, just as Adam was supposed to have done under that covenant. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. The penalty for disobedience was death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. The death threatened was consistent with the promised life and was justly appropriate. Temporal, spiritual, and eternal death. 
The event confirms this, as on the day man ate from the forbidden fruit, he was legally considered dead, but the execution was postponed due to his future descendants who were in his loins. Another covenant was prepared instead. Nevertheless, that day marked the beginning of his physical death as his body received a mortal wound. His soul also experienced death, losing its original righteousness and the favor of God evident in the guilt and shame that made him hide from God. He became liable to eternal death, which would have occurred if not for the provision of the mediator, who found him bound by the cords of death like a condemned criminal. This summarizes the covenant into which the Lord brought man in the state of innocence. One may wonder if the earth's alliance with heaven was of little significance to those who have never experienced that holy and happy state. However, it is of great importance to us because Adam was the root of all humanity, our representative and common head. God entrusted to him our inheritance and stock, which he was to keep for himself, his children, and pass on to them. The Lord consolidated all of mankind's stock as if in one ship, appointing our common father as the pilot. He placed a blessing in the root, which was meant to be diffused into all the branches. As our text indicates, when Adam was made upright, so too was man, as all mankind possessed that uprightness in him. If the root is holy, so are the branches. However, I will elaborate on this further later. If Adam had remained obedient, no one would have disputed the representation. Number three, the doctrine of the state of innocence applied. Use one. For information, this teaches us several things. Firstly, it was man himself, not God, who caused his own downfall. God created him upright, but he chose to fall. It was not the Lord's guidance and inclination towards good that led to his tragic choice. Was God so miserly with him that his pressing needs drove him to seek supply in hell? No. Man was and is the cause of his own ruin. Secondly, God can justly require perfect obedience to his law from humanity and condemn them for falling to obey it perfectly, even though they now lack the ability to keep it. In doing so, God is merely gathering what he has sown. He gave man the ability to fulfill the entire law, which man lost through his own fault. However, man's sin could never diminish God's right to demand perfect obedience from his creature and punish them for disobedience. Thirdly, this highlights the immense obligation we have to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who with his precious blood purchased our freedom and freely offers it to us again. Through his sacrifice, we gain everlasting security and our freedom can never be entirely lost. Hosea chapter 13 verse 9 and John chapter 10 verses 28 and 29. Free grace will establish those whom free will cause to fall into the pit of misery. Use number two. This reproach is three groups of people. Firstly, those who despise genuine religion and take pleasure only in the world and their sinful desires. Such individuals are far from righteous and hate God, Romans chapter 1 verse 30, because they hate his image. Upright Adam in paradise would have been a great offense to these people, just as he was to the serpent whose seed they reveal themselves to be through their malice. Secondly, it rebukes those who bring shame to religion or feel ashamed of it when facing an ungodly world. There are those who brazenly ridicule piety and mock seriousness. Against whom do they taunt and jeer? Is it not against God himself, whose image partially restored in his creatures makes them appear foolish? Let us not be mockers, for doing so will only strengthen our own bondage. 
Isaiah chapter 28, verse 22. Holiness was the glory bestowed upon man by God at creation. But now the sons of men turn that glory into shame because they themselves glory in shameful things. Finally, it reproves the proud and self-conceited professing Christian who admire themselves in garments of rags that they have patched together. Many, after gaining scraps of religious knowledge and making some outward reforms, become filled with self-conceit. This demonstrates how heavily the effect of the fall weighs upon them, as they have not yet come to a true understanding of their own condition. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. They can see their own attainments, but fail to recognize their own shortcomings, which should humble them. True knowledge enables individuals to see what they once were and what they are currently, leading to humility and an earnest desire to press forward, forgetting what lies behind. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Such individuals are pitiful, like someone glorying in a cottage built from the rubble of a burned-down palace, even though it is so weak that it cannot withstand a storm. Use 3. Lamentation. Here we witness a magnificent structure, man carved like a splendid palace, now lying in ashes. Let us stand and gaze upon the ruins and shed a tear. This is a cause for lamentation and will surely bring lamentation. Would we not weep if we saw our country in ruins transformed into a desolate wilderness by the enemy? If we witnessed our houses engulfed in flames and our possessions consumed by fire? Yet all of this falls short of the tragic sight of man, fallen from heaven like a star. Ah, uh, can we not now say, Oh, that we were as we once were, when there was no stain in our nature, no cloud in our minds, no pollution in our hearts? If we had never been in a better state, the matter would be less significant. But those who were once clothed in scarlet now embrace dunghills. Where is our original glory now? Once there was no darkness in our minds, no rebelling in our wills, and no disorder in our affections. But alas, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Righteousness once resided in it, but now murderers are present. Our silver has become dross, our wine is diluted. The heart that was once the temple of God has turned into a den of thieves. Let our name be Ichabod, for the glory has departed. How low has humanity fallen, we who were created to have dominion and be rulers of the world. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The creatures that once served him now stand in opposition, and even the least of them, when given permission, proves too powerful for him. Waters flooded the ancient world. Fire consumed Sodom. The stars fought against Sisera in their courses. Frogs, flies, and lice became executioners in Egypt, and worms devoured Herod. Mad must form alliance with beasts and even the stones of the field, fearing that anyone who finds him will harm him. Alas, how we have fallen! How we have plunged into the gulf of misery! The sun has set upon us, death has entered through our windows, and our enemies have extinguished our two eyes, delighting in our suffering. Let us therefore lie down in the dust, covered in shame and confusion. Nevertheless, there is hope for Israel in his distress, for we have a mediator. There is a physician for our souls, a Savior who can repair our ruin. So come now, O sinner, turn your gaze to Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Leave behind the first Adam and his covenant. Instead, approach the mediator and guarantor of the new and superior covenant. Let your hearts declare, be our ruler, and let this division be under your control. Allow your eyes to weep continuously without interruption until the Lord looks down from heaven and takes notice. 
Lamentations chapter 3, verses 49 and 50.